Welcome to Nutritionista, the official podcast about all aspects of nutrition with an in-depth view into women's health. We focus on nutrition for every stage of life, as well as body liberation, healthy eating at every size, eating to nourish and fuel your bodies, and working through health challenges with education and inspiration. We'll help you to walk away from the diet culture and understand the biochemical mechanisms behind disease and illness. Your hosts are Megan Hayes and Rani McCudden. Megan is an award-winning clinical nutritionist, biochemist, personal trainer and postpartum doula with a master's in both women's health medicine and reproductive medicine. With 12 years of experience teaching, training and supporting women and their families, her passion lies within the field of hormonal health, menstruation, fertility, birth control and pregnancy, whilst empowering and supporting women through postpartum and beyond. Rani McCudden is a chef and nutritionist from the Central Coast, New South Wales. She has an advanced diploma in nutritional medicine and is in her final year of a Bachelor of Clinical Nutrition. She also holds a diploma of practice management and is a physio-based Pilates instructor. She is passionate about sharing her love and creativity with food as well as the importance of nutrition with her clients. She also runs a small hobby farm and leads a paddock-to-plate approach to life. Join us here weekly to talk to other specialists and wellbeing advocates in the fields of women's and family health, parenting, fitness and wellbeing, all from the comfort of your own home, car or wherever in the world you may be. We're thrilled to share this time with you. to our latest installment of the Nutritionistas. This week we're going to be talking about something a little bit different. So we're going back to our roots with women's health. It's something that both Megan and I are very passionate about. Um, so this week we're talking kind of around the stigma with hysterectomies, age. Um, it's a little bit personal for me because I'm actually going to have a hysterectomy tomorrow. So we thought we'd have a bit of a discussion on what's going on, the lead up, why I'm having one, and just a little bit of, you know, fact checking and sort of breaking down that stigma that's really attached to younger women having hysterectomies. Um, it's not just an older person or an older lady's kind of surgery. Uh, I was quite shocked to find out majority of my friends have actually had secret hysterectomies. It's like there's a whole society out there of like hyster sisters that nobody <laughs> knows about. I love that, the Hister sisters. I love it. So for those that aren't entirely sure exactly what a hysterectomy involves, they might have, a, have an idea but just need a little bit more information. In a nutshell, a hysterectomy is the surgical removal of the womb. So it's a woman's uterus. And that can be with or without the cervix. And that can include and not include the ovaries also. Hysterectomies themselves are used to treat a number of conditions. So that could be from heavy or painful periods, fibroids or prolapse, or for other medical interventions. It's often a, it's a major surgery for females regardless, and it can be performed either through the abdomen, so it would look relatively like a cesarean scar, or it can be done internally through the vagina. So it can be done for a multitude of reasons. Rani, do you want to share a little bit more on kind of what's led you up to surgery tomorrow for yourself? Yeah, of course. So I have, 
like most women, it was a little late with my, my pap smear, I guess, COVID. I didn't go last year and I just, you know, it's one of those things I, I always put off. I'm dragged there. I hate it. I don't know any woman that enjoys having a pap smear. Mm-hmm. So I was late. I was like, yep, finally time. I'm going to go and do it. Went and had um, a chat to my gynecologist. I've never had any issues with um, pap smears before. So I was like so confident. I was like, yep, get it done. It'll be fine. Don't worry. Never had an issue. And then I got a phone call uh, probably about four days later to say, listen, we've found some issues. You have uh, precancerous cells or, you know, an abnormality within my test. So I'm just dying inside. So then she was like, you need to come in tomorrow and I need to basically have a look and check your cervix and then see, you know, what's going on. And um, if you have these these precancerous or cancerous cells on your cervix. So then I stressed all day. Obviously, I'm a very anxious person. So, like, I didn't sleep that night. Um, they say to take some pain relief before you come in. So I took two Panadine Forts, which completely wow. wiped me out. <laughs> Panadine Forts. I'm such a lightweight with Panadine Forts. So I'm just so woozy, rolling on in. And um, so the procedure was she sits down and she basically discusses the, the results. And she said, look, obviously there's an abnormality that's come back. Um, she just needed to have a look at my cervix to see if she could detect anything that was abnormal. So I was like, okay, that's fine. So for that, they use a large microscope. Same thing like the um, your pap smear, they use a speculum. And she just basically has a really good up-close look at the cervix. Um, during that, she said, listen, I can see that you do have um, abnormal cells, so I'm going to perform a biopsy. So I was like, okay. So that's where they basically take a part of your cervix and they send it off to pathology to determine just how, what grade the, you know, the abnormalities are, what's going on, and what treatment you will need from that. Yeah. So that result came back a few days later, and it wasn't the best. Um, I mean, it wasn't terrible. Um, you know, nothing is too bad. It's just obviously there's a an abnormal growth of cancer cells there. So my next choice was then, well, I don't need my uterus. I just want it all out. So I wanted to remove the cervix as well. Um, So that was my decision to just have a full hysterectomy. I've had ablations and multiple sort of surgeries in the past with um, gynecological issues with endometriosis and ovarian cysts and, um, and ablations. So it was time for, you know, the uterus to go, especially getting a quick, swift boot out (laughs) with the, you know, the cancer. So, Okay. So when you say after all the histology and everything was done, so now your hysterectomy is scheduled and in terms of grades of hysterectomy, you would call that a total vaginal hysterectomy as in the Yeah, so I'm having the laparoscopy. So she's going through previous scars um, and then it will be coming out vaginally as well. Okay. Um, So I'm having my fallopian tubes my uterus and my cervix removed so she's removing the fallopian tubes because cancerous cells can travel yep. up into the uterus and then into the fallopian tubes um she'll have a really good check of my ovaries when she's in there to make sure there's nothing going on there uh-huh. and then obviously remove any excess kind of endometrial tissue that i've had she did that with my last surgery which was um my ablation in 2017 so just a nice clean up kind of thing. It's it's all kind of happened really quickly. It's been, I think, three weeks since I had my first pap smear to now. Like, it's all happened, yeah, 
Uh, I mean, I only found out two days ago that, that my surgery was booked for Saturday. So, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty overwhelming. Yeah. So you had originally you had more time between then and surgery, yeah, but correct? But because of COVID and everything and, forward, yeah. You know, yeah, so and the instability as well of what can happen surgically. Yeah. Um, so that's why she said, look, we're just going to do it this week. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. okay. All right, so the aim, the whole intention for your specific surgery is obviously to keep the ovaries, correct? Yeah, that's yeah. correct. I mean, I still want to have a natural menopause like yeah. everyone else. Um you know, and then that sort of decreases things like vaginal dryness um, and all the other things that are associated, hot flushes and stuff that come with menopause. Yeah. Um, I'm only 40, so, you know, I'd like to prolong that a little bit longer. So having a hysterectomy and leaving ovaries behind wherever possible can have so many benefits for the woman. So in a nutshell, biochemically, ovaries continue to make small amounts of estrogen for so many years after menopause. And they continue to make significant levels of two major hormones being testosterone and progesterone until at least the age of 75 to 85. Muscle and fat cells convert those hormones into more estrogen, which helps protect against heart disease and osteoporosis. The incidence of heart disease and osteoporosis has been shown to be lower in women who have intact ovaries than women who have had their ovaries removed. So while around 14,000 women die of ovarian cancer every year, heart disease kills approximately half a million. So that's like 500,000 women a year. So there's a lot more preventative measures in having the ovaries left behind than not. Yeah, it's so interesting the role that the ovaries actually play and the reasons why we do leave them behind. Um, so there's five types of hysterectomies. Um, the first one being a total hysterectomy, um, where the uterus and the cervix are removed. A subtotal or a partial hysterectomy. So that's where the uterus is removed, but the cervix is left in place. Um, while removal of the cervix, you know, generally is advised because it's a potential cancer site. Some women feel, I guess, it has a purpose and there's a bit of a stigma, again, around losing your cervix. Um, if you do keep this, you know, obviously your cervix, you do need to keep up with having your regular pap smears um, and cervical screening. Yeah. So the next type of hysterectomy is a bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy. So that's where the uterus, fallopian tubes and ovaries are all removed. So generally, this is the type of surgery that's kind of performed if the woman has had cancer of the ovaries, um, uterus or chronic pain due to a reoccurring pelvic infection and um, endometriosis and conditions like that. Uh, the next type would be a radical hysterectomy. So this is probably the most extensive type of hysterectomy. It involves the removal of the uterus, fallopian tubes, ovaries, upper part of the vagina, and associated pelvic ligaments and lymph nodes. So this is performed if a woman has cancer of the cervix, ovaries, fallopian tubes, um, and uterus or uterus. Yeah, it's rather serious. So that would generally yeah, be done, wouldn't it, if there is obviously numerous kind of cancers at play there. Extensive. So it's, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Extensive spread of the cancer. Um, the last type is the hysterectomy with prophylactic bilateral salpingotomy. So most doctors now recommend removing the fallopian tubes at the time of hysterectomy just due to the research um, suggesting that early ovarian cancers um, do tend to originate in the fallopian tubes. So I found it so interesting, um, I guess, 
this has all come around so fast with, you know, having the hysterectomy. How many of my friends have actually also had hysterectomy? And they, they just haven't spoken about it. Um, I actually put out a little thing on my Facebook saying, listen, if any of my friends gone through this surgery, I've got this coming up. Um, because I don't, I don't have a mum, I don't have parents, so I didn't have anyone I could kind of say, hey, listen, have you been through this? Um, yeah. So I kind of put it out to my network to sort of see, and I was just so overwhelmed with how many of my friends flooded my inbox saying, oh, I had mine six weeks ago, oh, I had one five years ago, I had one when I was 35, that was the best thing I ever did. And, like, not one of my friends has said it's the worst decision they've ever made. Every single person has said it's life-changing, you'll be a whole different person, this is going to be the best thing you have ever done. Wow. And I think some of your friends as well. Yeah, I've had quite a few. But it's weird, though, coming from a place of preventative medicine, I've always, in my personal opinion, obviously I haven't had anyone immediately in my family that have had it so I haven't seen it firsthand but I always just assumed it was just best to kind of address root cause and go from there but like I said I haven't dealt with it myself firsthand so when I hear this from so many people to the people I've spoken about it's kind of absolutely blown my mind. And that's the thing you know you know as well working in women's medicine um, it's so hit and miss sometimes and it takes a long time to work out what the exact causative factor is behind correct. these conditions. Yes, correct. It can be so multifactorial. So I guess, and if you've gone like me, I've had, you know, menorrhea for 25 years. So I'm like, I'm ready to be done. And it's just so nice that as a woman I can say, you know what, I don't want this anymore. I don't need this. So I'm going to remove it. And even being a complementary medicine practitioner myself, and we kind of always, you know, obviously try to advocate to avoid the knife. I think sometimes we need to listen to women and what women actually go through and how long they've endured this pain and horrendous bleeding and, you know, discomfort, associated migraines and social impact as well like I know when I menstruate I can't do anything I'm like in so much pain I you know having menorrhea it's a horrible condition and then combined with endometriosis it's just it's kind of exhausting and it's so nice to be able to now say you know what I don't need this yeah and endo is a terrible terrible disease to kind of be battling for so long anyway and I've seen that through so many clients but at the end of the day there's only so much we can do as practitioners as well in terms of what clients, I guess, wish to take on at the same time. They could be absolutely stringent or a little bit lax, but you kind of get what you put in, but it's still a lot to manage cyclical every single month. So I entirely get that. On the opposite side of the spectrum though, I guess both you and I, we've had all of our children and we're satisfied with that. But how do you think, that would feel for a woman obviously to go through the the medical conditions you've kind of gone through to lead up to today as in the the pap smear result but what about a woman you think that maybe in her early 30s or late 20s or however old it's irrelevant that has not had her children though do you understand like i, I kind of yeah. sit there and just have that intense fear and sadness for them that they're, they're faced with this now obviously it is it is so you know sometimes I kind of wish it would be great if you could almost just donate your uterus when you finish with it to somebody else who needs it I'm done I mean, I don't know why this hasn't been invented. <laughs> oh, I mean you know organ donation I don't need it it still probably works I mean it 
leads have a leave it take it <laughs> <laughs> mine works fine it's free to the next owner <laughs> yeah that's good yeah but you know there's so many amazing ways with medicine these days like surrogacy adoption um i have had two friends personally that have previously gone through this where they've had cervical cancer quite young in their 20s okay one just opted not to have children and the other one has gone on to have a, a beautiful daughter via surrogacy um so you know i guess Sometimes where there's a will, there's a way, and it is so hard when your body is denied something that you crave and want so badly, which is why mental health um, is a really important part of, you know, this sort of process. And I guess obviously then leaving ovaries behind in that age group would be hugely beneficial. So you could obviously look at the IVF transfer route for surrogacy, so you could have your own child but someone else physically carries yeah. and give birth to. And you can always do an egg extraction before you have the hysterectomy as well, um, depending on how severe, severe things are. Yeah, um, depending on what your hormones are at the moment. Which is what one of my friends did, so. Okay. Oh, interesting. Um, so potential complications of the actual surgery. I don't want to talk about this when you're going in tomorrow. But, <laughs> yeah, um, it's like tomorrow. <laughs> don't worry. I've, yeah, I've. I think I've spent way too long Google researching, you know, and it helps that Steve's the doctor. So, you know, he's definitely put my mind at ease. Um, we actually sat down the other night and um, we watched a full hysterectomy surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, it's probably the silliest thing to do. But for me, like, I need to know exactly what's happening. So, you know, it was it, it was interesting. And I love watching surgery kind of YouTubes and things like that. It really fascinates me. So for me... To see that it's not a complicated surgery, you know, yeah. it's relatively simple. Okay. Um, it's key, mine will be keyhole, so this is keyhole surgery. Yeah, and it's just kind of a snip and release, really, okay. and then remove. I guess, like you were saying before, it's no different to watching those one born every minute videos, which just yes. tug the oh, heartstrings and get you excited all in the one go and horrify you all at the same time. Yeah, definitely. So... In terms of potential complications, not that you will have any at all, um, no, do you want to run us through textbook. kind of what what they discussed with you anyway? What are the options, I guess, and things to be aware of for other people considering this kind of surgery? Yeah, so obviously there's always that possibility you can have a reaction to the anaesthetic. Um, they do ask you in your pre-op. I mean, I had my pre-op um, interview today have you ever had any reactions to any um anesthetics or anything like that are you allergic to any drugs so um obviously they just rule out any kind of allergy you can like have nausea and vomiting i guess that's just everyone has a different reaction i find to yeah, anesthetic. i recover really well um i've never been one to to take days or weeks but you know everyone's different absolutely it normally takes it yeah, like a couple of days to get over one normally. I guess me having the compound heterozygous MTHFR, so my liver hates any form of like anything more than a Panadol, not my friend. Yeah. Also allergic yeah, to codeine, so I can't do anything for it. Oh, okay. So yeah. it just makes it really difficult. But, yeah, I get what you're saying. Some recover great, some not so great. Yeah, and I've never between. had an issue, so I'm not worried about that. But, okay. you know, there is also that risk of, like, infection or internal hemorrhaging, yeah. um, that, like a hematoma. So you can get, like, a buildup of blood beneath the stitches in the abdomen. Um, another thing that does scare me is, like, scar tissue. I've had one keloid scar before. Um, every other scar from surgery has been fine. But um, there is obviously that issue. Uh, the other one is blood clots. Um, any sort of surgery that kind of goes for the around two to three hour mark, like a hysterectomy, you do have that risk of like 
thrombosis or deep vein thrombosis. Um, you can have issues with urination afterwards um, because you have a catheter inserted. Sometimes prolonged, you can have an infection of the catheter and that kind of thing. Um, you can have surgical injuries to bowel, bladder, you know, that kind of thing. It's really rare, though. It's not like that's something yeah. that kind of happens very often. And I guess, too, um, when it comes to bladder infections and urination issues at the same time, too, that's kind of standard with most procedures too so for example yeah. when you get a, you can have one inserted when you're pregnant obviously giving birth and whatnot and that can cause the same issues most yeah. a lot of women that I know of though have also had like I guess they would call it like a double whammy surgery where they've had issues with bladder especially women that have had multiple children like we're multiple, talking like yeah, yeah four or more or it could be any number really um yeah they would obviously face like urinary incontinence and things like that. So they would obviously do a two-in-one where they would do bladder repair and the hysterectomy all in the one go. It's kind of like an internal mummy makeover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? But, you know, and that's the other thing you have to worry about. Obviously, you can have a vaginal vault prolapse. So that's where, obviously, the top of the vaginal wall can sag or bulges down. Yeah. Um, that can bring on things like decreased sexual desire, that kind of stuff. A lot of women associate their uterus with their fertility and their virility, and they're not a woman if they don't have it, but it's like, Oh, you can still be a woman. You just don't bleed every month. Like it's just, you know, it's fine. It doesn't yeah. define you. Yeah, I guess those feelings of grief and loss of those female sex organs is yeah. definitely there. And I think more so it depends on the causation behind the surgery. So if you are getting every organ removed, ovaries included, yeah. I guess that for some that would feel a lot more than others. Um, yeah, that's it. Everyone has, you know, their own personal response and reasons. Like I've been so emotional this week and I'm, I want it gone, but I still have that emotional kind of nervousness. Um, you know, it's like, I'm losing my uterus. It's massive surgery. It's like, it is a bit, it's so overwhelming to be honest. Like, especially when you don't have, you know, a parent, like a mum or my, honey, my, my sisterhood, my hister sisters <laughs> around me. <laughs> Um, you know, and they've been amazing. My girlfriends who know I'm going through the surgery have just been absolutely amazing, like offering me tips, telling me the little things that people don't talk about, like what to wear, what to take in, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. They've so been amazing. I guess removing the stigma and actually talking about it, much like we have in the past with allergies too, That's just it. getting no it out in the it. open and discussing it, there is no shame behind it. And I guess no. even if that goes for more of the elective side of hysterectomies too there's yeah. no shame in that game like if you're doing it for you high five That's go for it, it. Um, as women it's our body we have the right to choose now yes correct correct and if it's going to make life easier and remove symptoms that are cyclical and really hard to get on top of by all means go for yeah. it um i yeah, guess definitely. self-care after hysterectomies what have you been told so far and then i guess we can just interject and i can talk about some things that i would generally suggest for clients so what, yeah, what have so you been told? It's hard because it's all come on so quickly and I'm assuming I will definitely find out more in that post-operative stage. Yep. But the things that my friends, my sister sisters have told me that I need to rest, um, which is so difficult. <laughs> you do. I, I don't stop. No, you don't. So it's going to be so difficult to actually hand back to other people my role um, in the house and, you know, as a mother and all that sort of stuff. It. It's going to be, I think that's going to be my hardest thing um, is 
resting. Yeah. Um, especially because I've already chewed through all my Netflix. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the one thing the hospital did say is it's really important to get moving as soon as you can. So she said, when you're in recovery, start moving your toes, move your legs as much, you know, try and get up that first day because she yep. said the faster you try and move, the faster you'll recover. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's obviously really good. But you just can't overdo it. So don't go for long walks. Just go for short little strolls. Um, have to avoid standing for too long, especially in that first kind of week. Um, no lifting um, or stretching or anything like that. So I think they've given me a 500 gram limit in the mm-hmm. first couple of weeks of just kind of like post-cesarean of what you yeah. can do. Um, you know, there's other things like constipation, obviously. When That's you're a huge anesthetic. run, yeah, especially mm-hmm. for that kind of surgery too and being down essentially for so long too like the, po- the yeah, post recovery yeah. um in terms and the medication you've got to take yeah afterwards. exactly that's it's obviously it all has an effect on what happens internally um and then i guess the biggest um hurdle obstacle i would find is probably that you have to avoid having sex for at least six weeks so <laughs> you need to make sure that everything is healed you know <laughs> it's gonna be a long six weeks but we'll get there yeah poor steve he'll be right <laughs> He can take one for the team. Um, In in terms of constipation too, that's something that I would generally address as it was. So post-operative factors um, contributing to constipation would be the pain relief medication, first and foremost, as with most other surgeries, that is, yep, number one. Um, Obviously, then not moving around, so that's obviously decreasing the physical activity. Um, internal swelling like the inflammation would be a huge one um are they doing prophylactic antibiotics i imagine they yeah. would yeah towards the end so then you've got gut flora changes there as well um general pelvic pain which is yeah. going to be uncomfortable but you'll get on top of and move onwards and upwards and how long are you going to be in hospital for do you know so i'm in for at least three days possibly four okay and then coming home for a full week of bed rest. Yep. Okay. Um, we'll get your Netflix up and going with some more suggestions. That's the easy part. Oh, I just don't know what to watch. I feel like I've watched everything that's good. And, like, I'm back to re-watching our old, like, Housewives now. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, because I'm just like, I just need to watch something in the background while I'm doing my work. We can talk later, but did you watch this morning's one? Oh, Beverly Hills. Yeah. Yes. Oh my god! Oh my yeah, really gosh. good. We'll discuss that later. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, all right. So first and foremost, uh, we would focus on constipation. So in yeah. terms of constipation, what are things that you've kind of prepped for in terms of that? Uh, just great food. I've got some bone broth that I'm awesome. taking, so I yep. figured that's going to obviously help with my digestion. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't use laxatives personally. Um, I've never had much of an issue recovering post surgery with constipation. Yep. I guess I'm just going to fruit, natural things. Um, I've got probiotics to take for when I get back home. Obviously, yep. I can't take them with you, but um, yeah, just got natural sort of things. What yep. would you suggest, me? Um, it just, it depends on the person too and their tolerance on things. So obviously I would stick on a kind of not, not entirely liquid, but as liquid as you can for the first few days anyway, just to make life a little bit easier. Um, I've been in that scenario before where I've been petrified of the first bowel motion after giving birth. Oh, yeah, the baby. (laughs) 
Uh, if you know, yeah. you know. Um, the last yeah. time what I did is I had C-Max with me, my vitamin C supplement in oh, hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And as we all know, you can test your bowel tolerance with that really easy and pass a softer stools. <laughs> yeah. That's oh, kind and of, husk as well. Yeah, of course. Look, some, some tolerate that great. Some, I guess, yeah. not so great. So with that one, if you haven't tried it before, I would err on the side of caution, but otherwise it will be fine. Yeah, I'm not a fan of it. I just find it's like drinking dandruff. Oh. It's <laughs> <laughs> different, you know. It's just not, yeah. it's not in my smoothie. Yeah, <laughs> no. maybe, but not silly in my Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> can't get that out of my head now yet. <laughs> um, I guess smoothies would be a great one. I would just yeah. ease off on the protein powders, obviously, but even fruits like prunes or peaches plums pears kiwi fruit especially if you're not allergic um and apricots kind of those more stone fruits and yeah yeah, things that kind of just help a little bit more um adding oats into a smoothie obviously if i'm making a smoothie and i'm using oats or flax i chuck that in first and give it a good blitz so it kind of pulverizes a lot more before i start adding ingredients on otherwise it kind of gets a little bit clumpier for my liking anyway um yeah and yeah, if you tolerate dairy, by all means, go for it. Um, otherwise, stick to more liquidy, like, yeah, coconut water would be a great one too to kind of balance those electrolytes post-surgery. Um, and then just, I guess, this time of the year here in Australia too, I'd stick to more the stews and, like, slow-cooked kind of Broth really nourishing. Kind of yeah, exactly. Or miso soup. You saw me scoffing down on that before. Oh, miso. Oh, and, and, you know, miso is great because you can take sachets in the hospital because yeah, my biggest thing is, like, the food that they give you in hospital is, is not the best. It's not really nutritious. Um, so I, I'm taking in my powdered Nutri-Organics bone broth with yes, turmeric. I love that one. Um, yep. And I thought I'll just sit that often during the day. Yep. Um, yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, and just kind of just keeping an eye on actually eating instead of yeah. fearing the food for that first bowel motion. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, just to avoid eating too much fibre at the start just to make sure that you're not making things worse. Um, yeah. In terms of post-recovery, I'd stick with foods that are kind of higher in zinc and then I would go Pass for... the oysters and champagne in the recovery <laughs> Oh, I love it. <laughs> I, I would love that. It's just a shame, like, you can't actually have any visitors at the moment. So I'm yeah. going to be walking in there on my own. Like, it's, <laughs> oh. yeah. it's... Yeah. And then I guess, obviously, staying away from foods that will cause gas or fermentation yeah. in the gut. So things like, look, the brassica, so we're talking cabbage, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, if they're in your diet already and you do well with them, stick with them. If they're not in your diet, don't chuck them in straight after because chances are you may have an issue. Uh, peas and beans, onions, pears themselves. I know I mentioned it before, but some people react different in terms of dried fruits, especially those that are dried with sulfur. Um, they can cause issues too. Adding bran to foods like, you know, the old bran you can buy from the supermarkets. Yeah. yeah, that can create issues pretty quickly. Artificial sweetness, so sorbitol, that can cause huge yeah. gut issues. Um, coffee, mm-hmm. yeah, everyone can hate me for it now. It can cause gas in some, as does obviously the original culprits like beer and soft drinks so forth. So yeah. Yeah. just kind of... I wouldn't say a low FODMAP diet. I'm just saying be cautious about what you're eating. 
Um, yeah, definitely. And then in terms of afterwards, there'd be a, a, I have a great post-operative protocol <laughs> that we roll out with clients and it kind of focuses around, yeah, replenishing microbiome that's kind of removed from either being in hospital, having infections or going through antibiotic use. What are some mm. things you would do that's possibly different? Um, oh, gosh. I think you really hit the nail on the head with most of it. Optimal hydration, I think, is really important. Um, you are very dehydrated after surgery, so making sure you're really keeping up your fluids, bone broth even. Um, I find what I love, and not everyone's a fan of bone broth as well, by the way, but I love it. Um, I just find it so nourishing. And when you don't feel well after surgery, it's just nice to have that nice, comforting kind of, you know, um, warm cup of love really <laughs> dandelion tea as well I'm, I'm a massive fan of dandelion tea um, yeah I'm so right. i'll be having that yeah <laughs> okay and just really bring it back to basics quality fresh produce yeah try and keep it as colorful as possible obviously yeah, yeah. If you can get in some more um antioxidant dense foods and then yeah i guess after that too you just have to kind of apply a personal approach so you can kind of go a little bit crazier crazier with phytoestrogens so your soys yeah. and so forth just to get those flavonoids in and increase some estrogen content that may be a little bit lower yeah definitely so that concludes our discussion on obviously hysterectomies, the reasons why, and all that sort of stuff. Um, next week we will be discussing. I uh, hopefully I'll be well enough to come on and talk about what happened during my surgery, how I felt in hospital, what happened after, um, and all that kind of stuff. So looking forward to discussing that with you guys next week. Perfect. Hope everything goes great. Thank you so much for sharing and being so open and honest with everything. You're welcome. And I really hope it can help some other people that are faced in that same kind of scenario now or just to open the floodgates with discussion. So if you've been through this, reach out. If you're curious yeah. about it, reach out. There's no stigma attached with any of it. And there's so much, as you've heard, that we can do before, during and after. So that's right, definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here, everyone, and hope everything goes great for you tomorrow, Rani, and we'll Thank see you. everyone. And we'll chat to everyone next week. Awesome. Thanks. Okay, bye. bye. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really hope that you each got something valuable out of this episode, and we can't wait to hear what you think of it. Please, please make sure you hit subscribe in the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you can listen to the latest episodes that we release weekly. As we're totally independent with this podcast, we really do rely on your subscriptions, reviews, and your shares to spread the word. If you have any questions, please join our Facebook group. It's totally free, and we love getting into conversations with you all there. All you need to do is search for Nutritionista Community. If you want to read our blogs or would like to continue your health and wellness journeys with us, you can visit myself at www.nutritionista.com.au and you can see Rani over at www.cutrockcottage.com.au Until then, see you next time.